The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. And this is The Hard Shoulder with Anton in for Kieran. A man from Cork tells the true story of Dermot Fenton, who made national headlines in 1998 following a rare heart and lung transplant operation, which involved a race against the clock and a mercy dash to London on the government jet. The documentary is narrated by his brother Pio and it uh, details the medical challenges that Dermot faced with cystic fibrosis and the life-altering impact his transplant would have not just for him but for two other families. And in fact, in in this small snippet that we have here, Dermot's friend Peter Curtin recalls his first time meeting Dermot. When I knew him first, I didn't know he was sick at all. I probably knew him for quite a while before, you know, for six, nine months before I realised he was sick. My first meeting was with outside the church in Glenville, a hundred fifty. For a long time, he was our only source of transport. We had uh, an ever-increasing fleet of seat 127s that, um, that brought us everywhere across the country. We probably pushed, started a 127 in every parish in Cork, at least, over the over the course of our youth. So I always envied his um, charm and his his, uh, his his easy way with people. He, he had a, a charisma or something. Well, and we were at time 18, 19, 20, going to a nightclub. It was very frustrating, to be honest, when Dermot could just charm girls left, right and centre. And more of us were left in his wake. <laughs> and uh, and not, not, not a chance of talking to anyone. So that's uh, Peter Curtin talking about uh, Dermot Fenton and to tell us more about the documentary that he narrates. P.O. Fenton, Dermot's brother, has uh, joined us. P.O., first of all, my my condolences on the last year, brother, because he passed about um, six or seven years ago. But this is a remarkable story. Tell us about his, his his health condition, first of all, was CF that put him on the transplant list. Isn't that right? That's correct, Anton. Yes. So it's always great to talk about my brother because he was someone who was full of life and, and getting the chance to do so is always enjoyable. Uh, so he was born with cystic fibrosis in 1974. And at that stage, it was a particularly nasty disease. It has changed a little bit since and that there's a better prognosis for people with it. So he would have had a, a very kind of difficult childhood in terms of the amounts of time he spent in hospital, the challenges he had around breathing, coughing, etc. all time, really. So um, he um, persevered, though, and actually had, you know, despite challenges, got on with life. We grew up on a farm. He tended to kind of engage with it the same way as the rest of his brothers and sisters. Didn't tend to hold back. There was a spirit there about getting on with life that was there from the very beginning. I often say if it was me, I would probably have folded over far earlier. Uh, But he didn't have that. He had that real zest and energy for life. So how did he come to the point of the transplant then? So by the time um, Darrow was 23, 24, his quality of life had really deteriorated. Uh, he was on oxygen 24 hours a day. It was, uh, he, he was kind of a very, he'd become blue looking even actually from oxygen deprivation. Cystic fibrosis can be very hard, primarily on the lungs, but also in the digestive system. So at that point, the best treatment for cystic fibrosis was if you could get one to have a heart and lung transplant. Again, that has changed a little bit since. It tends to be just a lung transplant now, despite all the, the really positive therapeutics that are there. So in at that point in 1998, in order to get a transplant, you had to go to the UK. Uh, there was no Irish centre for uh, heart and lung transplants. Uh, so he'd been over and back from to the Brompton Hospital in London. And at that stage, I guess, you know, he was getting to a point where, you know, things were really, I suppose, under pressure for him and had this pager, which he had to carry with him all the time, waiting for the call um, for the transplant. And people who wait for transplants always have that sense of dread of what the next phone call might bring. And for him in November uh, 1998, um, the bleeper went off and he got a call saying, look, try to be in London. 
uh, by 11 o'clock. This was 7.30 in the evening and getting from our house, which was in the countryside, even to Cork City was a bit of a struggle at times. Uh, so um, there was a whole procedure that Irish transplant patients had to kind of bear in mind, which was contact the airlines, try to get to uh, a seat on them. Uh, but that evening in calling uh, Aer Lingus and other airlines, he was only met by um, uh, answering machines. So it was pretty frantic, uh, but eventually tracked down through the Air Corps, the government jet. So, And I understand the government jet was in use. Yes, it was being refuelled in Baldonnell. It was about to carry uh, Minister Tom Kitt uh, to Brussels. He got a call saying, look, would you mind if we divert it to Cork? Uh, he was happy to do so. So he met uh, my brother and mother in Cork and the apron at the airport and had a few words with them, gave him a, a miraculous medal, scaffolder, saying you'd probably need that more than I do for the moment. And off they took to London. Um, was Tom Kitt still on the plane? Still on the plane, yeah, yeah. He gave them a little bit of peace and quiet and fairness, but he was a reasonably calming presence at that stage for Darren and for Mum, I have to say. So it was, it was, and he, he considers it something that was very positive for him in terms of his political career. You know, uh, you know, a nice story about government jet is pretty rare, to be honest, you know. And an amazing thing for your brother to get a call that says you've about four hours before you go through a heart lung transplant. It yeah. doesn't give you a lot of time to, to prep for major surgery. So how did the surgery work out? So um, at that point, I suppose we didn't realise, but other people had got a similar call at that stage. And I'll come back to that in a little point. But he went into the operation around midnight. He was out by 8.30 the next morning. The type of operation that he was subjected to was called a domino transplant. So there was three people involved at that stage. Uh, Some poor chap who had died, um, whose heart and lungs were going to be transplanted into my brother. And because... At that stage, my brother's heart was actually reasonably fine. They were able to transplant it from him into someone else. So all of this was happening in one operating theatre. A very unusual type of experience, like performed by one of the leading surgeons in the world. And he came out of it very well. Um, So recovered very quickly, had that pink glow to his skin very quickly. And there was a whole fuss around it, which kind of carried us through it. So... I suppose some of the more interesting things that happened, one was after he woke up from his uh, operation, he requested a pint of Guinness, which he was very fond of uh, and which he got uh, and and had many of subsequently. Uh, The second thing that was quite interesting about that was that the domino aspect of the transplant, we weren't really aware of fully at the time. But a number of weeks later, he was in the hospital. He was in the gym, kind of trying to build up his strength and got chatting to this woman next to him. And there were it was a transplant hospital, so there was a tendency to compare notes, so to speak. And in the course of that conversation, they realised that she had his heart in her at that point in time. So he went from kind of being basically seat bound to suddenly up on a little cycling bike next to a woman who was also powering her bike through what was his heart. And uh, thankfully, she's still alive, actually, which is, is great to hear 24 years later. So it's quite fascinating. That's remarkable. So his heart is still keeping somebody alive as we speak. Indeed, yeah. So it was. It was. It, 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 look, it's comfort to us at this stage, you know, to know that some aspect of him is still walking the earth uh, at this point. And uh, you know, it's it's been. We we talk about that in the documentary, which was expertly produced by Daniel Kyle. I have to say, but one of the more interesting things that happened subsequently for me, and it, it, it attests, I think, to you know the, the the sliding doors nature of life. Sometimes was. We hadn't realised that someone else had got a call on the night that my brother had the transplant as well, saying we might have a heart and lung for you. So when I wrote about this about four years ago on Twitter, a girl got in contact, uh, Leona, and she asked me very specific questions about the transplant. And I was like, where is this going? 
I was very unsure. And in the course of our interactions, she explained basically that her mother had got that call at that stage. And the same night that my brother had, she was in London in hospital at that point. And for an hour or so, there was great excitement in her life. There was a prospect of, of this life-saving treatment. But it passed her by and, and my brother got it instead. So Leona herself was, was four at this stage. Uh, her mum was in her 30s. Sadly, her mum, Magella, passed away the following week. Uh, so Leona grew up with this notion of a man from Cork who had got the heart and lungs that I, I, I guess, you know, her mother had some hope of for a little while. And um, to me, it's I suppose, it, it, you know, it's just a, a, an, a, an example of how life can go different directions at times. And I know Leona, who talks very movingly about her own mother in the documentary, finds great closure in the fact that my brother lived a very full and rich life after his transplant. He really embraced the fact that he received his heart and lungs and actually made, made the very best of it. So I, I often think he was living like a person who was living for two and, and it maybe in many ways that's true. What a remarkable story of luck and joy and sadness and excitement. I, I mentioned that he, he passed away at, um, um, six or seven years ago. At what age was he when he died? So Dur died when he was 41. So we, we buried him on New Year's Day 2016, which is, an, uh, you know, oddly a, a bizarre day for a funeral, to be quite frank. Um, he had been living quite well up until about two or three days before he died. He was up on a tractor doing his normal day's work. And, and then just over the course of a number of days, things went away from him. But the, given CF back in the day... That wasn't a bad run. Not at all. And uh, I mean, it was a testament to his spirit that he was able to persevere for so long. And uh, again, you know, I like meeting people now who've CF and kind of hearing the more positive stories about treatments that people have had. I guess the, the final comment I'd make is that we're still having a conversation in this country about organ donation and opt in and opt out. Um, we've been having that conversation for a long time and hopefully uh, maybe we'll get to a point where those conversations will come to a close soon. Particularly uh, when, as you say, Dermot's heart somewhere is still, still keeping pumping. somebody alive. Yes, indeed. What a story. It's a man from Cork. It's premiering on News Talk on Sunday the 27th uh, at 7am and then it's going to be repeated Saturday, December 3rd at 9pm and of course it'll be on Go Loud and all major podcast platforms. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from 4 on News Talk.